Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I'm your fearless leader, Clay Travis. Appreciate all of you hanging out with us. Um, Roadmap, I will be uh, on with you tomorrow. Uh, Then I'm headed down to South Florida. Then I'll be back Monday, Tuesday. Then I'm headed down to South Florida again. Um, And then the Super Bowl is the next week. So I'm going to be on the road quite a bit. Lots of fun stuff coming. Uh, Lots of cool, different moving parts uh, associated with with Outkick. Um, And uh, I want to dive in. I got a bunch of different stories here. Uh, Jim Harbaugh officially to the Chargers. What do we think about that? What do we think about Michigan's decision in terms of who they're going to replace him with? What in the world's going on with Bill Belichick and his coaching search? LPGA's got a trans golfer issue. Uh, Carrie Lake says she was bribed not to run, played the audio for us just now on the Clay Travis Buck Sexton show. You guys may have heard it. Uh, Peacock says they added 2.8 million subscribers with their NFL game. What does that tell us about what's going to happen next? Uh, Kayshawn Butte, many of you will remember, LSU star wide receiver, uh, allegedly bet on LSU football. He has been arrested. Um, and uh, why I believe all of the data reflects that the 2024 election is likely to be decided by college-educated suburban women voters and what I think Trump should do. I will continue to expand on this, even though Twitter gets fired up about it, which I love. Nothing really shows me uh, how much you care better than sharing my content as widely as you possibly can. Uh, All right, so let's start with the Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers. I think it's a good move. Look, uh, really good quarterback takes a team from bad to mediocre to good. Really good quarterback like Justin Herbert has taken the San Diego Chargers, now the L.A. Chargers, from bad mediocre to good. That's the leap that a strong quarterback makes for a franchise. A franchise wins a Super Bowl by going good to great. Oftentimes, the difference between good to great for a franchise is the head coaching hire. I think Jim Harbaugh has the potential to take the L.A. Chargers with Justin Herbert as their quarterback from good to great. They're in a tough division, the AFC West. They've already got to deal with Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid. Uh, whatever, we don't know what the Broncos are going to do. We don't really know what the Raiders are going to do. Those those franchises are in a state of uh, uncertainty right now in general, especially at the quarterback position, but also with relatively new coaches. Antonio Pierce is going to be a first-year guy and uh, Sean Payton, second-year guy with the Broncos. There is a window for Jim Harbaugh to get the Chargers into the playoffs and win a game there, and I think he can do it rapidly. I think he can take the Chargers from good to great. I really like the hire. I think that makes sense. It's a very good job. I like it uh, as the open jobs go better than any other. Chargers had the best open job because they have the best quarterback. A lot of the other teams either have an unproven quarterback or they're going to be drafting one. Um, And I would rather have a proven top 10 caliber quarterback in Justin Herbert, which I believe he is who's also young, which means you got him for the next seven or eight years in theory without having to figure out whether you got a quarterback. Jim Harbaugh has won, turning Colin Kaepernick into a star uh, for a short period of time uh, to replace Alex Smith, if you remember that tenure of his with the 49ers. He wins three straight Big Ten titles. He wins, uh, beats Ohio State three straight years. He wins a national championship. He now rides off into the sunset. To the extent that some of you out there are convinced the NCAA 
is going to do something to Jim Harbaugh. I don't think that's true. I don't think they're going to do anything to Michigan. I told you that I believed Michigan would be able uh, to play and that the NCAA wasn't going to shut them down. Somebody was going to have to beat them. Nobody beat them. Jim Harbaugh is a national champion. I don't believe that's going to be taken away. What should Michigan do now? Uh, Sharon Roar more, right? Uh, this is an easy decision. Uh, the guy stepped in and won six games last year with Jim Harbaugh suspended. Uh, he has proven himself. All of the teams know him, given the team, the players and the recruits, given the fact that you have the uh, transfer portal window that opens when a coaching change occurs. I know Michigan's already starting class, which makes that more difficult to move. Same thing can be true elsewhere, but certainly for recruits that would be uh, arriving later. I think you promote more from within. I don't know what kind of contract you need to give him. Uh, maybe a couple of years. If the wheels really come off, uh, then you can move on and go find somebody else. I don't think the wheels will completely come off. I think even with Jim Harbaugh, and I think this is one reason Harbaugh was going to leave, I think even with Jim Harbaugh, it's likely that we would have seen a decline overall in uh, the the level of, uh, of of excellence of Michigan. They peaked. They're losing their quarterback. They're losing their star running back. They're losing a lot of their offensive and defensive playmakers on both sides of the ball. Michigan was going to come back, I don't know, 9-3, and 10-2 style, probably even with Jim Harbaugh. I think Ohio State clearly will be the favorite. I actually think Drew Aller and Penn State are going to move up. And then we don't really know what to expect with Oregon, Washington, USC, and UCLA also now getting integrated into the Big Ten mix. Uh, there are a lot of different moving parts there. I think it's going to be a challenge to see how all of that ends up breaking out. So that is uh, ongoing. That is a story that is worth uh, paying attention to. Uh, maybe the last moving piece in a significant fashion for college football as we roll into the offseason and get ready for the second signing period. Um, now that Bill Belichick is signed, this, to me, is really strange. Sorry, now that Jim Harbaugh is signed. Bill Belichick's coaching career may be over. It doesn't seem like, we'll see what happens with the Falcons, where there have been reports that Bill Belichick has had multiple meetings, although they've called them interviews. To me, Bill Belichick is like, uh, is like you know Denzel Washington or Tom Cruise or Brad Pitt, somebody that's been a star for 25 or 30 years, you don't need to audition in order to appear in your movie. You already know what they can do. What kind of interview process does Bill Belichick have? He just says, look, here's what I do. This is the last 25 years of my tape. Uh, the six Super Bowl rings, all of the success I've had in New England, the fact that I've rebuilt multiple teams, built around Brady. I get it. I always have said quarterback is more important than head coach. I don't know anybody out there now who argues that the Patriot dynasty was based more on Bill Belichick than it was Tom Brady. I don't know anyone out there at all. But I do think it's intriguing that basically the entire NFL is saying, yeah, we're really not that interested in you, Bill Belichick. Panthers hire a coach who's never been a head coach. Titans hire a head coach who's never been a head coach. Uh, Patriots hire a head coach who's never been a head coach. The um, uh, the Raiders hire a head coach who's never been a head coach. I mean, other than an interim, right? I know Antonio Pierce coached to finish the season. 
but I'm talking about somebody who has ever worked as a head coach. Meanwhile, you got Bill Belichick, who is the second winningest head coach in the history of the NFL, and nobody really seems interested other than the Falcons in even considering him for their job. So is Bill Belichick's coaching tenure over? It appears that that might be the case, unless the Falcons decide that they want to take a chance with him. I actually thought the Cowboys could have made the best uh, decision, but this is intriguing. Now, Seattle moved on from Pete Carroll. Uh, Doesn't seem like there's any interest in Pete Carroll either. So you've got two Super Bowl-winning coaches basically forced out from the teams where they won Super Bowls, and no one seems interested at all in bringing either of these guys in. Uh, I think it is very intriguing to think about. Um, Peacock. I told you uh, yesterday we had a big conversation about Netflix and WWE Raw the last two days, really. Uh, Stock price skyrockets for WWE, uh, the TKO company that owns them, uh, the first day, and then Netflix skyrockets yesterday. Peacock is losing money hand over fist, but they announced that they got 2.8 million subscribers from their NFL playoff game. Who was it? The Chiefs against the Dolphins, right? Dolphins went on the road against the Chiefs' super cold game. I believe that was the Peacock subscription. Uh, They are saying at Peacock that they got 2.8 million subscribers out of that game. Actually, that's lower than I would have anticipated based on the number of people that they said watched that game. I think they said 26 million people watched the game. That means that 90% of those people were already Peacock subscribers. That surprises me because I think a lot of people were not subscribed to Peacock. Uh, But 2.8 million new Peacock subscriptions. They paid roughly $100 million for the new game, uh, for that playoff game. Does it make financial sense? Well, if they're charging $6 a month, and if those 2.8 million Peacock subscribers all stayed committed to Peacock for a year, then they would make $200 million roughly in subscriptions and signups. Now, the reality is I would imagine a substantial portion of those 2.8 million subscribers cancel. The question is how soon will they cancel having watched the playoff game? What is the churn rate going to be here? Because if very many of these 2.8 million stay for multiple years and would have otherwise not subscribed, I think what you're going to see is more and more of the streaming services deciding to try to put high-caliber live sporting rights on their streaming service because of the money that they get back. Again, they would have doubled their money off subscriptions if everybody stayed for a year. I would bet, I would just bet, that the average of those 2.8 million new subscribers, I bet the average subscription ends up being like six months. And if that's true, that would mean roughly that this is a push. Because I think a lot of people out there will sign up intending to cancel, but the reality is once they have your credit card information, they don't actually end up canceling it. So again, I think this is an intriguing story to follow as to whether or not it's going to make sense in the streaming universe. The other thing is, I don't know that anybody other than Netflix is ever going to make money in streaming. Netflix is making billions of dollars. Peacock has lost way more than they ever said they were going to lose. 
Paramount has lost way more than they ever said they were going to lose. Disney has lost way more than they ever said they were going to lose. Uh, Comcast is basically getting out. HBO Max or whatever it's called. Max has lost way more money than they ever said they were going to lose. The only company in streaming that has made money is Netflix. And now you're starting to see a lot of these different streaming services basically sue for peace and try to get out of the business that they've entered. They left behind the cable and satellite bundle, which is the greatest media business in the history of the universe. And they have replaced it with the worst media business in the history of the universe. And I just used Disney as an example. Disney has lost $11 billion so far in streaming. That is billion with a B. That means they have to make $11 billion before they can get back to dead even. And by the way, the losses are still growing. I don't, and now Disney's going to have to buy out Hulu, the one-third stake that Comcast has, and they're going to have to cut a check for $12 or $13 billion for that one-third, and then they're going to be losing money on Hulu too. So Disney is in a real significant financial problem. Uh, but I did think those numbers, to the extent that they're accurate, I believe Variety reported them, uh, is where I read it. Peacock's claiming to get 2.8 million subscriptions. Uh, Carrie Lake, you may have heard her uh, just now on the Clay and Buck show about an hour ago. She came on and said and played a taped conversation between her and an Arizona Republican Party official. She recorded the conversation where she was told that she could be paid substantial amounts of money if she were willing to sit out this cycle of the uh, Arizona Senate race. Now, the question that immediately begs to mind, and I asked, uh, and she did not have an answer, she said it could have been a lot of people, is who was willing to pay her not to run for the Senate from Arizona? Uh, she said she doesn't know, so there could have been a lot of people. But also, on top of that, why? What was the idea that she was a danger in Arizona? And who was the sort of person pulling the purse strings that was willing to pay her? I would encourage you to go listen. I shared it on uh, social media. Pretty explosive interview from Carrie Lake explaining all of uh, those details that is out there right now. Uh, building on Arizona, as I just mentioned, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Those five states will decide who wins the presidency in 2024. Whichever individual wins three of those is going to be the president of the United States. The math requires, basically, that either party, whoever wins three of those five. Now, in 2020, Biden won all five of those states. And by the way, this is presuming that North Carolina is not a toss-up state, that Virginia is not really a toss-up state, that New Hampshire is not really a toss-up state, that Minnesota is not a toss-up state. I probably should add Nevada to that list because it's very competitive. So maybe I should say six states. Whoever wins those states is going to be president of the United States in 2024. All six of those states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada, were all won by Joe Biden in 2020. In order to get elected president, 
Trump needs to win some combination of at least three of those states and maybe four because the math doesn't add up, I don't believe, on Arizona, on Georgia, and on Nevada, for instance. And by the way, again, this is presuming that there's no other states out there that are in play. In other words, that like, what's the math? 44 of the states, we already know who's going to win. And really, the fighting is just going on for the six. Um, I think Trump, if he's the nominee, and appears he's going to be the nominee, is going to win Georgia, and I think he's going to win Arizona. But ultimately, ultimately what has to happen is, if you look at the data, people focus on all sorts of things that isn't accurate. If you look at the data, Trump did not lose in uh, Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Arizona, or in um, uh, uh, any of those states, right? Because Wisconsin, because of black voters. Black voter turnout was actually not very substantial. So a lot of people focus, they say, oh, they cheated in Detroit. Oh, they cheated in Atlanta. Oh, they cheated in Milwaukee. Oh, they cheated in Philadelphia. Or, oh, they cheated in Phoenix, right? Big cities, large populations. Um, It's not actually true in terms of determining the outcome of the election. They may have rigged the game. They might have changed uh, the rules. All those things can be true, but the margins that were run up in those cities were actually not that good. Biden and Kamala did not do very well with black voters in cities. They didn't really blow the numbers out. They were nowhere close to what uh, Barack Obama did in 2012. What happened, this is important, what happened is Trump bled substantial support in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, uh, Phoenix, uh, Milwaukee. All of these suburban college-educated women in 2020, a lot of them moved away from voting for Donald Trump. They were turned off from Trump, and they were turned on, ironically enough, to Joe Biden. So my my contention, based on the data, would be that if Trump is going to win in 2024, he needs to do way better with college-educated suburban women. He doesn't need to win them. He just needs to do way better than he did in 2020. And how do you do that? Well, one, Biden can be old and incompetent and doddering and not perform at a very high level. And people can just say, as 75% of the American population is saying right now, well, I don't think Joe Biden is qualified to be president of the United States. That's basically what 75% of the American public believes. And you would think that would redound to Donald Trump's benefit. Because if people don't think that Biden can do the job, even people who might not like Trump or might not have voted for him before might be willing to believe that Trump could do a better job. I would submit that there are going to be a lot of those college-educated suburban women that are being hammered on the issue of abortion and are being hammered on the issue of uh, January 6th. And the Democrats are going to try to convince all these college-educated suburban women that if they vote for Donald Trump, somebody's going to knock on the door and they're going to come and they're going to take a 15- or 16-year-old daughter or granddaughter who's pregnant in that house, force her to have a baby. That's what they're going to do. They're going to try to sell abortion fear in all of these communities. Um, How do you combat that? Okay? You have to be rational here. can't be emotional. I think a lot of people out there who are independent 
and are not particularly connected to one party or the other are going to look at this and they're going to say, I don't like Trump and I don't like Biden, right? Talking about people who are persuadable. Not everybody out there. People always like to respond anytime you talk about a group and they say, well, I'm a suburban college educated voter and I voted for Trump. All right, that doesn't change the facts, right? Your anecdote doesn't erase the reality of what the numbers tell us. Men are, in general, faster than women. That doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of women who would beat a lot of men in a race. People always, men are fast. If I say men are faster than women, somebody immediately responds says, well, I'm a woman and I'm faster than insert man here. Okay, fine. That doesn't mean that men are not still generally faster than women. Doesn't mean women aren't fast. Just means men, generally speaking, faster than women. Men, generally speaking, taller than women. That doesn't mean that there aren't some six foot five women who are way taller than most men. Your being a tall woman doesn't invalidate the fact that most men are taller than women. And your being a suburban woman who votes for Trump and loves Trump and is never going to doesn't invalidate the fact that there are lots of college educated suburban women who think differently than you. And those are the people who are going to decide this election. And I think for vice president, I think for vice president, having a woman on the ticket could be important when it comes to appealing to those college-educated suburban women. So right now, if you look at the uh, at the gambling markets and you say, okay, who are the favored people to be the next vice president, right? Who might Trump pick as his VP. Literally at this exact moment, Elise Stefanik is number one on that list. Second place, Christy Noam. Then you've got Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy. Okay. They have their own appeal. And then you have Nikki Haley, right? So the three top women, according to the gambling markets that Trump is considering, Elise Stefanik, Christy Noam, and Nikki Haley, all are college-educated women with children. Why would you not consider all three? People get fired up, like me saying Nikki Haley could make sense as VP. Nikki Haley has a more historically conservative record than Elise Stefanik does. Now, I give credit to Elise Stefanik for the way that she grilled Harvard, MIT, and Penn uh, reporters, sorry, uh, presidents, but she was... Uh, she was like the best friend of Paul Ryan. She's a someone who believes in global warming historically. She's a New York Republican. She, I mean, if you compare her to Nikki Haley, she's not running against Trump, but Nikki Haley has a longer conservative record. Nikki Haley got elected as a governor as a part of the Tea Party movement back in 2010. So, why would you consider Elise Stefanik and not consider Nikki Haley other than the fact that Nikki Haley is running against Trump? I have to actually look at the data and contemplate what decision you're making. I think a woman can make sense. I think a college-educated woman could make sense because I think if you're trying to win, you have to persuade people that are not in your base. There's lots of people in the base that just want to argue who's Harder core in the base. 
I love Trump more than you. Okay, good for you. It's a lot like what goes on in a fan base where fans end up arguing about who likes the team more. This always happens. I've been through it so many times. This always happens in the SEC. You come out and you criticize a coach. You say, I don't think he's going to get the job done. Data's out there, losses, recruiting classes. You can look at it. There's a huge segment of the fan base that is all in on the coach and considers any criticism of the coach to be a criticism of the fan base, and they immediately attack anybody who attacks the coach. Right? I've been through this a lot. Um, and then, over time, opinions can change, and then the fan base can end up disliking the coach more than like a casual fan might, or more than somebody who's not even a member of the fan base. So I think if you're being rational and you're expecting that this is going to be a tight race and that there's going to be a billion dollars probably spent trying to attack you, I think you look at it and say, okay, if a lot of people out there are making a decision, and again, I'm not talking about the people who are going to vote Democrat no matter what, and I'm not talking about the people who are going to vote Republican no matter what, and let's say that's 40% on each side. I'm talking about the 20% that's persuadable in the middle. I think there's a good chance that the 20% that's persuadable in the middle, a lot of those 20% are going to say, yeah, I don't really like Biden and I don't really like Trump. And then how do they make their decision from there? You give them a hook, somebody that they like, and they say to their friends, college-educated suburban women I'm talking about, yeah, I don't really like Biden and I don't really like Trump, but I like Elise Stefanik or I like Nikki Haley, or I like Christy Noem, because they are also college-educated women with children. They remind me of myself. You're probably not going to like Kamala Harris, who doesn't have kids of her own, who is a bad politician. I think Trump could hook some of those voters that are persuadable by making the right VP pick. My general position is people don't vote based on the vice president at all. I don't think a vice presidential choice by and large hurts. And remember, I've been arguing for a while, the single best to me vice presidential pick is picking somebody who can deliver a state. Like Brian Kemp, if he were Trump's vice president, would deliver the state of Georgia. Now, Trump's not going to pick him, but if he were Trump's VP, you could take Georgia off the board. And then all you'd have to do is win Arizona and one of Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania, and you're president of the United States, okay? If there were in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, or Michigan someone who could guarantee to deliver one of those states, I would say that would be an incredibly compelling pick too. Doesn't appear by and large. I love Ron Johnson. Doesn't appear. I mean, if he left then they would get to appoint a Democrat to his seat because they have a Democrat governor. There's not a Republican office holder that is so popular in Michigan, Pennsylvania, or Wisconsin that they could deliver the state. I do think Brian Kemp could in Georgia. But if you're not going to go that route, then I think going after college-educated suburban women by picking a college-educated suburban woman to be on your ticket is the way to go. And I think all three of those women would probably really obliterate Kamala Harris in any uh, conversation that they had. By the way, if Carrie Lake were the governor, 
of Arizona, I think Carrie Lake as Trump's vice president would also be a no-brainer. I think if Carrie Lake were Trump, were currently the sitting governor of Arizona, and I think she'd be doing a better job, by the way, than Katie Hobbs, I think she'd be able to deliver the state of Arizona. That is how I would break all this down. And there's people out there that are like, oh, you can't, you can't even consider Nikki Haley. Why not? If she were to drop out of the race right now and endorse Trump, why would she not make a good VP? She was just the ambassador to the U.N. She was actually in the cabinet. She doesn't believe in global warming. She's been tested on the national stage. I think she would obliterate Kamala Harris. I don't understand how somebody suddenly becomes unacceptable to even mention, like they're friggin', uh, uh, like we're talking about Voldemort or something. She who must not be named. I just think it's very strange. Um, so that's how you win. Trump needs college-educated suburban women. That's where he hemorrhaged support in 2020. That's where he has to build back in 2024. He doesn't have to win them. He just has to limit how much Joe Biden or any other Democrat can be able to have success there. A um, couple of other stories. Kayshawn, did I mention this yet? Kayshawn Butte, wide receiver, 8,900 wagers reportedly, six on football. This is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. A lot of these college kids are going to get the apps on their phone and they're going to place wagers. You've been 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, the advertisements are going on all during the games. The advertisements are taking place sometimes outside of the stadium. They're doing events inside of sports bars. They're advertising this all the time. Um, I think this is just going to continue to become more prevalent. Obviously, you try to tell all these guys, hey, don't do it. But I think you're still going to have more and more of them. I don't think this is going to go away. As legalization comes to more states, there are going to be more controversies. Now, positive is, if you're trying to fix a game, having legalized sports gambling should make it harder to actually be able to focus, uh, to, to fix a game, but just keep tabs on this. Finally, we just had Riley Gaines on the show, and she was great talking about the LPGA having to potentially deal with a trans golfer. And I want to reiterate what I said, what Megan Kelly said, what Riley Gaines said, and what um, Seth Dillon at the Babylon Bee said. Uh, Sage Steele had a really good clip explaining that she hears from a lot of female athletes, including members on the LPGA tour. And what they say is they're afraid if they take a stand against a man being able to identify as a woman and try to win a women's golf championship. By the way, we have ladies tees for a reason. I play golf poorly. Trust me, I've hit a lot of shots that barely get past the ladies tee, so I'm very familiar with it. Um, when you actually get out there and look at this, it's crazy that you would allow a grown man to identify as a woman and try to win a women's championship. But why would some of these women not speak out? Well, they're afraid of losing sponsors, according to Sage Steele. So Megan Kelly, uh, Riley Gaines, me, Seth Dillon, we said, hey, if you take a stand and speak out against this as a women's golfer, and you lose a sponsor, we will sponsor you and help to replace the money so that you can still make a living competing in your chosen sport without having to feel as if you have a choice between being able to make a living or stand up for what you think is right. 
So that is what is going on there. Uh, and now I'm proud and happy to be involved in all of that. As always, DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, I am Clay Travis. This is Outkick the Show. We'll see you tomorrow.